Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm speaking with Chef Yi Vang about traditional Hmong cuisine, including stuffed chicken legs, fermented mustard greens, and a cilantro-based hot sauce. You know, if you have a group of people who don't have a land of their own, country of their own, they have to have something that belongs to them. That's, I think that's human nature, right? And for our people, it's the food. We're, we're all about adaptation. So I tell people, Chris, I said, if you want to know the Hmong people, know our food. Because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat and how we make our food. Also coming up, we make garlic chili roasted cauliflower. And Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us the origin of words like sherry and currants. But first, it's my interview with Isabella Della Ragione. She's an arboreal archaeologist who saves ancient fruit trees from extinction on her farmstead in the Umbria region of Italy. Isabella, welcome to Milk Street. 
Thank you for the invitation. So let's start at the beginning. What is arboreal archaeology? The name Archaeologia Arborea is a name that my father gave to this activity because the archaeologists, they start from a small piece of uh, ceramic to reconstruct the life of the communities or civilization. Uh, In the same way, we do starting from a small pear or a small apple to reconstruct the life of many rural communities. Your father was a farmer. Uh, He was dedicated to preserving local culture. But there seemed to me to be a point after World War II where Europe and Italy started to lose its cultural history. Is, Is that true? Yes, unfortunately, it's true. My father started during the 50s and 60s when the system of agriculture was changing. So he started to think that uh, it was very important to save this kind of uh, heirloom varieties because they were part of our history. Uh, They were our cultural roots. And I started with him when I was a child just because uh, it was like an adventure. Uh, And now is for me the adventure of my life. So how do you know a fruit actually existed once it's been lost? I mean, these kind of varieties were in the past, so linked with the life of the people. So uh, we started to go in the old farms, uh, asking to the old farmers. Then we we went uh, in the monasteries, because monasteries were places where the monks or friars conserved many things inside. I've seen some documentaries about your work, and you often start with art from the Renaissance and Baroque periods to go back and find items that you don't see very much anymore. Definitely, I arrived to the art just like a source of documentation. And, of course, in our area, we had the greatest painters in the Renaissance. So Piero della Francesca, uh, Francesco Melanzio, Cristofano Gerardi, all these kind of painters. And they used to paint fruits with a very, very special symbolic meaning. For example, I am studying an incredible cycle of frescoes in Foligno of uh, Gentile da Fabriano, who chooses behind each period of the life a kind of fruit. For example, for the teenager, he chooses pears. And for the very, very old person, he chooses peaches. So for me, this was the most important thing. Because if a very important painter choose this fruit, this fruit was diffused in the territory at that time and very connected with the life of the people before. So, okay, so you go to a farm or monastery, you find an old variety of fig or peach or apple. Now what? Uh, You have a farm. Uh, How do you propagate this rare find? Yes, we are cultivating these varieties in an orchard that has now 600 plants, figs, apples, slams, pears, and we use the traditional way to cultivate, like uh, Romans, like Etruscans, for example, in the countryside, I see a tree, very old tree, and I cut some uh, small branches. Of course, you have to be careful about the season, the physiology of the plants, and uh, also the traditions. 
you're sort of an heirloom variety detective, right? I mean, you, you, that's really what you do. Was there one particular variety of fruit or vegetable that w- was your best moment or you found something you never thought still existed? Uh, one is a pear that I found described in a very old antique uh, documents in archive, but I, I thought that, that was disappeared. And four, five years ago, I went in a very, very uh, isolated place in the mountains with a very old farmer. And she talked about this variety. And I said, why you didn't say about that? Uh, and, and she said, because you didn't ask, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, and it was like to find a, a great uh, treasure for me. Uh, another fruit is a sour cherry variety, uh, Bishola, very, very red. And um, I did a research and we discovered that this variety is uh, the richest fruit in antioxidant. And it is the only sugar that the diabetics can eat. Hmm. So. For just this example, if we leave this fruit, we leave a very important qualities of these fruits. So just because it's an heirloom variety, does it mean it's good? Or are there some varieties that, you know, it's no great loss that they're not here anymore? Or is it just a good idea to keep all the varieties alive and well? I mean, this is a, a great question. Is the the reason why I worked so much in this field? I mean, many varieties uh, lost their uh, role in in our uh, daily food. But uh, I think that is very very important to keep all these varieties in any case because biodiversity could be important for our future we don't know now which are our needs in the future maybe they could have some resistance some gene important for the future who knows isabella uh thank you so much it's been uh just a great pleasure having you on milk street thank you Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> that was Isabella Dalla Ragione. She runs Archaeologia Arborea in Umbria, Italy. Now my co-host Sarah Malt and I answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Well, before we uh, take any questions, I have one for you, Chris. What is your favorite way to eat a potato? I mean, boiled, baked, fried, chipped, gratined, what? Um, actually, almost any way. I, I would say mashed potatoes is high on my list of foods. I don't know why I basically eat them at Thanksgiving, but I, I keep forgetting about them. And the French have all sorts of wonderful ways of mashed potatoes. Um, and I would say the, the one dish that's really extraordinary is palm anna, you know, the, the thinly sliced potatoes, and you, you layer them in a skillet and with butter and salt and pepper, and then you put it in the oven and turn it over. That's one of my favorite things. And French fries, I'm sorry. I, a good French fries, still extraordinary. It's one of my top five foods. So mashed potatoes, French fries, and palms anna. Right those up there. Those are the three, yeah. Right up there. Well, as my husband would say, you know, when I serve him dinner, if there's potatoes on the plate, he's like, it's great. I'm happy. So, well, the, the, one, the one dish, though, I would love to do is pump souffle, you know, and that's, I have done them. I, I've never been able to do a great They job are hard of that. to do. I learned yeah. how to do them in a restaurant in France. So maybe you'll teach me. I will. All right. Okay. Let's take some calls. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Becky from Collingswood, New Jersey. How can we help you? When I began my journey as a home cook uh, many moons ago, I brought with me a three-by-five-inch recipe card file box, and that held all the recipes that I had at that point in my life. But now, fast forward, and I have a file drawer with recipes 
I've got recipes that come monthly as well as a shelf full of cookbooks. So my question <laughs> then is not about how to cook a particular dish. It's what's for dinner tonight. How do the two of you as professional chefs decide what you're going to cook on any given day? Yeah. And then the follow-up would be, how do you organize your recipes? Well, information overload. You have too many choices. And I think that's the killer. Yeah. I'm going to make a radical suggestion. Go for a week without using any recipes at all. Just try to cook yeah. with what you have or what you find attractive in the supermarket just to get mm -hmm. a break from this confusing <laughs> pile of stuff. And then what I would do is I would pick... 12 recipes, each of which represents a category of recipes. So a stir fry, for example, would be a category, a roast, a skillet, you know, dish, whatever it is. And so these are things that you could vary endlessly with different ingredients. So 12 master recipes and just use those for three or four weeks. And you know what? You're going to discover that you don't need recipes as much as you think you do. It'll make life easier. Sarah? I also rip recipes out or copy recipes, and I put them in a file called try. And I pick three or four that I want to try. And then mm -hmm. if they are really good, I put them into good recipes. And organizing the good recipes is usually by protein. Then, you know, I can say, okay, for tonight we're going to have this protein, and oh, I've got five choices. If you want to organize it, you go online you know, like our company, Milk Street. I mean, you can pick recipes you want to put into your save folder online. Yeah. And you can search by ingredient and everything else. So that's one way to organize it is do it digitally. But I mean, Sarah has 15 or 20 recipes that are at the heart of her foundational cooking, right? Correct. Uh, and that's what you need. You need your foundation. Then you can go play around. But start with six recipes. Start with seven recipes. Things you can do without a recipe you know by heart. Well, I, I will do that, and I appreciate your conversation and back and forth on this. It's, you know, I think it's just a question that all of us as home cooks have. It's the best question. There's really no easy answer. But please take a week and cook without recipes and see what happens. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, all right. Becky. Thanks, Becky. Great Bye. to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Well, hello. This is Stephen McDowell out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, Stephen. How can we help you today? Here's my conundrum. I am a very adventurous cook. Uh, I do dishes from around the world, and I finally got stumped by a recipe. It's for tea-smoked chicken, and it starts off very normal. You do a dry rub of the chickens for about four hours. Then you steam them. You create a glaze for them, which is your light and dark soy sauce, honey, some oyster sauce. You glaze it, and then the wheels fall off because the main ingredient in the smoking step is sugarcane leaves, uh, like eight ounces of those, four ounces of black tea, a couple ounces of brown rice, and a couple ounces of sugar. And I'm going, okay, sugarcane leaves. So I have a three-part question. One, any idea of what flavor profile smoking sugarcane leaves would be? And two, do you have any idea where to source like a half a pound of sugarcane leaves? And three, if not, any substitutions for this? Where the heck did you get this recipe from? For mine, I can tell it's an authentic Cantonese mixed cooking show. First of all, the tea is going to have a tremendous amount of flavor. I also wonder if the cane sugar leaves are there not so much for flavor, but just for combustion. I would just ignore the cane sugar leaves. This is the first time I've ever heard of that. But, you know, around the world, people cook with whatever leaves they What's have. What's there? Right? Yeah. I just leave it out and use the rice, the sugar, and the black tea. Okay. Yeah. When I visited, like, the Caribbean, which has sugar cane, right, they typically burn the sugar cane, the leaves, and it smells horrible. Yeah. I was in Mexico, and the cook I was with took small leaves and burned them and put the burned leaves on top of the food as almost a condiment. Sometimes the way they use leaves is pretty interesting, and it's not the way we think about it in terms of black tea and smoking. Right. 
in this case, the video certainly shows a lot of smoke being generated and the leaves being at the bottom of the walk with the tea and stuff. I think it might be right. I think it might just be a combustion yeah. thing. Yeah, I will go ahead and I will make this because, I mean, the pictures look phenomenal. <laughs> and I will send you photographs and I'll tell you how it turns out. Yeah. All right. Stephen, thanks a lot. All right. Well, thank you, too. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Lee in Barrington, New Hampshire. How can we help you? I was hoping you might be able to point me in the right direction here. I was visiting some family on the Cape last fall, and they wanted to order pizza, and they suggested getting this pizza with sweet sauce, which I was a little hesitant about, and it ended up being some of the best pizza I've ever had in my life. So I don't know what this sweet sauce is. wondering if you had some tips. Well, a sweet sauce for pizza is not traditional in Naples, but there's a lot of places in this country that do make a sweeter sauce, and they do have sugar in it, or they might cook it down with carrots or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's just a sweet tomato sauce, and it's just a style of sauce that you find in some pizzerias. I don't think it's anything more complicated than that, Sarah. No, I mean, I assume it was a tomato-based sauce. It was, yes. I should have clarified that, yes. And did you pick up any other sort of aromas in the tomato sauce, or did it just seem like a sweet tomato sauce? It was very sweet, and I didn't think I would like it, but the contrast to the cheese and the sausage, oh, it was so good. You seem to be saying it was really sweet. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as dessert sweet, but um, definitely more than I would ever Huh. expect um, from a pizza sauce. I've had sweetened tomato sauces, which is pretty typical, but I think you're talking about something that's an extra step away. I've looked online at different recipes. Most of them are saying start with brown sugar. I'm guessing that makes more sense than white sugar. I was just kind of seeing if you had any other tips that I could try. I think brown sugar is a good one. I was almost thinking about caramel. When you get something mm. that dark, it adds a bit of, you know, so it's not just sugar. It's sort of yeah. bitter sugar. I mean, I wonder adding a dark caramel to it. But I think brown sugar might just do the trick. Do a tomato sauce, add some brown sugar to it, or some molasses. Yeah, there's okay. lots of really cool sugars out there, like coconut yeah. sugar, palm sugar. You might try that because it would be a little more interesting. Yeah, another layer. You know, Cincinnati has five-way chili. I think there's also a pizza place out there, La Rosa's, that does have a particularly sweet sauce. You can probably find it online. Okay. Did you try going right to the source and ask what they did? No, I should. I know. Give it a shot. Yeah, do it. Yeah, it's a huge compliment to them, of course, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if they decide not to give it up, then you can just try the things that we suggested. Okay, great. Yeah, I can't stop thinking about this pizza. What else was on the pizza? Spinach and sausage. And the cheese blend was a little more on the sharp side versus the creamy right. mozzarella fantastic contrast. And was it just a thin coating of sauce? Yes, thin coating. Otherwise, it looked like your average, ordinary, right. traditional house of pizza. That might make sense if you have the sausage and the salty cheese and not too much of the sweet sauce. That might actually make mm -hmm. a lot of sense. It was perfect. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> every, so every night you go to bed, you just uh, you just keep tasting Mike's that pizza. pizza. Could be worse. Good there are worse things in life. If you do manage to get to the bottom of it, please let us know what was the secret. I will. I absolutely will. I'll definitely keep you up to date. <laughs> okay. Lee, thanks for calling. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, thanks for taking the call. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I chat with Hmong chef Yia Vang. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is 
the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Great Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Yee Vang, a chef who specializes in Hmong cuisine. Yeah, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I actually have an interesting intersection with you. I was in Hanoi years ago and took the train up to Sapa, overnight train, and ended up walking around for a few days in a bunch of Hmong villages. Mm-hmm. When I went into those villages, there was guards, actually. You have to go through a checkpoint. Yep. So what's the history of the Hmong people uh, in Vietnam and during the war? Yeah, so the history of our people in Southeast Asia goes back before the Vietnam War, probably goes back another hundred years. The gist of it is that during the Vietnam War, the U.S. government couldn't have boots on the ground, so they had quote-unquote advisors. And the paramilitary troops were the Hmong people. They hired them out and say, hey, here's the deal. We're going to train you guys. We're going to give you money. We're going to um, give you guys weapons. And would you fight for us? Win or lose, 
you can have citizenship to America. Hmm. And uh, my dad, at the age of 12, joined up. And that's the gist of how the Hmong people got involved. But we all know history. Uh, you know, uh, the Americans lost. They pulled out. And when they pulled out, they decided to say, hey, when we said that this was open for anybody who fought, what we really meant was only a few of you. Great. So, yeah. And then after that, after the Americans pulled out, word just came down that, hey, the Northern Communist Party is coming through and they're just destroying the villages. They're just killing everyone. And so my dad, because he learned how to use a compass through the military, right? So he tells me this story. He says, so I got in there. And all the village just looks at him and says, hey, can you help us? And so my dad goes, okay, everyone, just gather what you can carry. And he says, I literally just took my compass, I pointed it south, and it just started walking. Hmm. And everyone just followed him. So so the goal was to get across the river to a refugee camp and then yeah. be brought to the United States. Yep. So what, what I tell people in the, is this is you leave your village – you trek through the jungles for two months, eating roots of trees, just hoping that you can make it. So you make it to the banks of the river. You cross the river. If you're alive and don't get captured, then maybe you'll have a spot in the refugee camp. Well, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Can I ask a sort of personal question, which is, yeah. I mean, you were in that camp till age five or something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Do you think that what your parents went through is so unimaginable for the next generation that you can't understand it on some level? Yeah. So I'm 36, right? By the time my dad was 36, he fought a war. Right. He brought us, his kids to this country. He started working a low-end job, doing every, everything he could. Right. You know, I get, I get to pursue my dreams. Like, like the joke I always say to a lot of the boys who work with us, especially the Hmong kids who work with us, I'm like, look, our parents crossed the Mingkong River, okay? <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> a couple pots and pans, and like, we're good. Stop you know? whining, right. Yeah, yeah. It really gives perspective. So you also write that Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy. It's a way of thinking about food. I know a lot of cultures have very different ways of thinking about food. You know, Vietnamese are very different. Japan's different. Mm-hmm. Could you just describe to me, from the Hmong point of view, what is the philosophy of food? Yeah, so, you know, if you have a group of people who don't have a land of their own, country of their own, they have to have something that belongs to them. That's, I think that's human nature, right? You want something that right. belongs to you. And for our people, it's the food. We're, we're all about adaptation. So I tell people, Chris, I said, if you want to know the Hmong people, know our food. Because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat and how we make our food. You can, if you follow, like if you look at the kind of food we eat and why we eat it a certain way, it actually, it's actually an echo of our history of where we've been. It shows our interaction with, you know, the, uh, the Lao people, the, the Thai people, the Vietnamese people. And so a lot of times we, I have what I call like my Hmong brothers and sisters who are the hardliners that are like, no, Hmong food has to be done this way. I'm like, yeah, it was done that way with our parents and grandparents in Laos and Thailand because of the produce and product they had there. But we're here in the Midwest, especially here up in the Twin Cities. Like, what are the, what are the vegetables, the produce, and the products that are very vibrant up here? Like, we get to use that, and then we get to make our mark to show the next generation our story, and then they get to build on that story. And so I think that's what being Hmong is about, is that we get to create something that gives us a mark on history and then the next group of young Hmong kids that are coming through, they get to build on top of that. You know, food's food's like language, right? It it changes constantly and that's what makes it so fascinating. And as you said, it gives the next generation something to contribute to it. Yeah. So let's let's get into the food. Um my stuffed chicken legs with glass noodles and meat. So you want to talk about stuffing chicken legs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I can't take credit for that that idea. So basically, you know, my, my parents, they would uh, debone a whole chicken wing. It takes forever. And then they stuff it with uh, like egg roll stuffing. So basically imagine if you had an egg roll, but the wrapper was a chicken wing. Well, here's the deal. I'm like, gosh, man, that's just so hard and so long. And then my uh, brother and sister-in-law, they run this little uh, Hmong food stall. And my brother-in-law, Lang, actually started doing uh, uh, with chicken drummies. And I'm like, that's so genius. And you, you still get the same concept. But it's just like one long bone, right? 
and it's it's roasted off, so it's super crispy. You got that crispy chicken skin mm-hmm. on the outside, and it's just yeah, it's the best of both worlds. Right. I'm there. I'm yeah. <laughs> now I'm hungry. Um, you talked about hot sauces as being one of the four essential components of monk yeah. cooking. Um, are there different kinds of sauces for different kinds of foods or occasions? Um, kind of, but we have we have our like very basic one, which is called quetzal, which literally just means like peppers, you know, or hot sauce. Um, the base of it is a cilantro, and then it's you know Thai chilies, garlic, shallots, and fish sauce, and then you can do any variation of that. I, I add a little oyster sauce in mine because I like that deep richness. Um, and, you know, and, but then the base of it is cilantro, which is almost kind of like a chimichurri. And then my mom and dad, they make a hot sauce for us every year. It's like 60, 65 gallon. We just got our, this year's batch. Wait, 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 wait. They make 60 gallons. Yeah. They, they go pretty berserker. They love doing this (laughs) stuff. So my mom used to make this hot sauce at the house. Uh, and then we, when we started the pop-up, we started trying to put it on the menu and everyone just love it. So we just called it Mama Vang's hot sauce, you know, and it's probably one of the most popular things we do. So you said you worked at a French restaurant or cooked French food. Yeah. Could you give me a short course in sort of the the essentials of Hmong cookery versus French? I mean, there's some principles or cooking techniques that are unique to Hmong cooking. Yeah. So in the French way of cooking, it's, you know, it's the brigade style, right? right. So everything's got to, you know, you got your mise en place, everything's in, in, in its place. And, you know, it's very meticulous and it's very regimented. Uh, the best way to explain it, it's like it's this very beautifully orchestrated kind of uh, dance, you know. And when I cook with my mom and dad or when I cook Hmong food, a lot of it is it's like you go with what you have. I mean, I don't want to say it's not thought through, but you kind of you go with what you have. And the Hmong flavors are so rich, you know, and, and it's deep. And it's all about balance, right? So one of the things my mom always says is the reason why we eat rice with everything is the rice is the balancer. It balances everything out. So you don't want anything that's like super spicy. You don't want anything mm. that's like super fatty. You know, that's why I, one of my favorite things is like, like, a, like a slow roasted pork belly with that crispy skin on it. Mm-hmm. And then you eat that over like sticky rice. And you literally take that pork belly and you put it on top of that sticky rice. So then the fat from the belly actually goes in and the sticky rice absorbs it. And then to really get that full flavor, that's why you have the hot sauce. And then to kind of like make sure everything washes it down, that's why you have the vegetable that's usually in the broth. You know, and so every one of these four elements Mm. plays a role into bringing balance. Could you give us a couple more sort of classic Hmong dishes? Yes, some classic Hmong dishes that um, I would say is... Um, Hmong farmers grow what we, I just call it Hmong mustard greens. Like it's our, it's our mustard green and it's not like the mustard greens that are grown here. It's got, it's a little bit sharper, like arugula. Um, so it's Hmong mustard green and you braise it in pork bones, you know, or like neck bones and that broth from there, it has the sharpness from the mustard green and that fattiness from the pork and every Hmong kid, you can ask every Hmong kid, the moment that broth hits their tongue, that to them is home. That is my mom and dad's table. You did say, though, I mean, braised pork neck with mustard greens won't keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. It, it, what, you, what you mean as a, as a cook or a chef, you've got to also create foods mm-hmm. that are going to attract a wide enough audience, right? Yeah, and then I also think, too, is because like a lot of people will look at what we're doing. We even had Hmong customers, and they'd be like, oh, you guys are bastardizing our food. Like, you know, you guys are taking away from our people and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... But am I, though? And I, I just don't say anything anymore because I'm like, you know what? Actually, if I can go home and I can look at my mom and dad in the face and said, hey, you guys did a good job on us. Like, we're, we're continuing your story. If I can do that honestly, I'm okay, man. So do you ever think uh, about your story? Nah, not really. <laughs> Sometimes, I Really, you know, I was, like I tell people, I was a turd kid growing up. Yeah, I didn't want anything to do with our people. I didn't want anything to do with my parents. Like, I went off to college. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, and I tell people, you run so far from who you are that you actually run back to who you are. Mm. You know, like, we're cooks, and yes, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, businessman, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I just want to be a good storyteller. And th- that story is my parents' story. V9, the, the brick-and-mortar restaurant that we're building, it's a love letter to my mom and dad. You know, for me, it's the... I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry I was a turd, you know, when I was a kid. 
<laughs> and it's just like I want people to get to know them, you know. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really a pleasure uh, and honor having you on the show. I thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. It's been a huge honor. That was Yi Vang. He's the co-owner of pop-up restaurant Union Mung Kitchen, also the restaurant V9. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, cauliflower with spiced tahini and garlic chili oil. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So this week you cheated. Uh, you went to <laughs> London to get Middle Eastern food, which seems uh, a bit odd. Well, you know, it sounds odd, but actually it makes total sense because there is just this buzzing scene of Middle Eastern restaurants in London that are drawing on tradition but reinventing it as they see fit. And they are just unabashedly like borrowing from whatever traditions and flavors they want and combining them in new, fresh ways. And, and it's really just, just such a vibrant Middle Eastern restaurant scene in London happening right now. So we're talking right about cauliflower here, something which is all over the Middle East. Um, do we really need another cauliflower recipe? <laughs> I mean, really? You know, I wondered that myself, and then I tasted the cauliflower that we're talking about, and this was one of the best things I have ever eaten. Not just one of the best cauliflowers, but one of the best meals I've ever eaten. It popped in my mouth in so many unexpected ways with such contrasting flavors and textures. It was just amazing. I was at a restaurant called Berber and Q Schwammer Bar and Josh Katz is the man behind Berber and Q and he is all about meshing bold, bright flavors and contrasting textures in just in volumes and, and quantities. It's just surprising and just so wonderfully delicious. So you've been to the Middle East, as I have been. Um, do you think this version in London is slightly different than what you'd find in, let's say, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or wherever? Or, or is it radically different? I don't know that it's radically different, but what it is is it's a case of just gratuitously borrowing whatever the chefs like. You know, they, they don't feel beholden to a particular tradition. And Josh Katz is at the heart of this movement. I would actually describe him as somebody who takes like kind of an American barbecue vibe and blends it with the flavors of Israel and Turkey and Morocco. And it's that kind of mashup. So what you get is a lot more kind of this cross-cultural pollination of the food than you might if you were just saying, you know, in Tunisia or Tel Aviv. So the result is food that just kind of pops in your mouth, so much more so than you expect. So what is the recipe? It's a whole head, it's, it's cut up, what's on top of it, how does he cook it? Yeah, so it's a whole head, and he blanches it, and then he grills it, and he slathers it in butter, and he spices it with lemon and garlic and cilantro and cinnamon and sumac and cardamom, I mean, and that's just the beginning. And then he broils it, and over that, then he sloshes on tahini and pomegranate molasses, and then he throws on crunchy pine nuts <laughs> and green chilies and parsley and pickled onions, and the result is like this cacophony of flavors and, and textures. It's, it's really, it was creamy, it was spicy, it was bright and sharp and sweet and smoky all at the same time. And you forgot there was cauliflower underneath it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the cauliflower recipe for people who think they don't like cauliflower. Absolutely. Uh, J.M., thank you very much. A whole new take on cauliflower with spiced tahini and garlic chili oil. As you say, the best cauliflower recipe for people who don't like cauliflower. Thank you, J.M. Thank you. You can get this recipe for cauliflower with spiced tahini and garlic chili oil at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett give us a language lesson. That and more after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. 
And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, this is Sean from New Orleans. How are you all doing today? Oh, I love New Orleans. I can't wait to get back there sometime soon. What a beautiful place. It is. How can we help you today? Well, I've been fortunate to have a professional chef give me a recipe for crepes, and my baking for myself is vegan. I'm not a vegan, but I have food allergies, so it's a safe way to go. So in this chef's recipe for crepes, I can't figure out if for eggs, if I should substitute an applesauce or like that kind of substitute egg that are sold in organic and whole food type markets. Geez, that's a really good question. Isn't chia often used when you soak it with water as a substitute for egg? Chris, have you ever done that? Yeah, in my natural health days, which were short-lived, thankfully, Mm -hmm. a long time ago. (laughs) Yes. But um, you know what? I think you'd be kind of hard-pressed to do this well by switching out the eggs. I would try the fake eggs, you know. Mm -hmm. Besides that, I would go to a cookbook or online and find a recipe that already exists. I wouldn't try to make it up yourself because I just think it's one of those things that's going to be hard. What are they? What are fake eggs made out of? I don't remember the exact ingredients in the fake eggs. I mean, it, they are drier than the applesauce. However, when I haven't baked with the fake eggs yet, I have baked with the applesauce, substituting it for eggs. And the cake did come out, you know, very moist, like it had done before when I'd baked it with eggs. Are you talking about crap or are you talking about something else? Oh, no, now I'm talking about something else. Yeah. Yeah, in muffins or quick breads, you know, I think applesauce is a great idea. But in crepes, I think it would be an overwhelming flavor and not what you're looking for. Another thought came to mind is aquafaba, which is that liquid left from chickpeas. We have to think about why are eggs actually in a crepe? And it's probably for the fat content of the yolk and the structure of the egg white in the yolk. Right, Chris? Yeah. It's the structure, the protein, but the problem is that it's a delicate balance, as you know, Sarah, because you've made them many times. Yeah, I do make crepes. You have to get them just right. Yeah. I would think you're living on the edge here. You know, If you don't have to be vegan with this one, maybe don't be vegan with this one. I'd skip this one and uh, do something else. Yeah. I hear you. And I have learned with the 
vegan cooking and getting recipes either from a book online. Some of them are just kind of people's personal favorites and per their palate, they don't really bake well or some of them come out real dense yeah. or they're really sweet. Yeah, that does. Uh, I've heard that happen sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. And some are great. I have yeah. a couple, you know, I won't let go of. <laughs> Do you have an allergy to eggs or a problem with eggs specifically or not? Eggs and dairy. Uh, okay. Yes. Okay. Well, again, I would go online to a website that specialized it and give it a shot, you know. Well, thank you all so much for answering my questions. Sean, thank you great. so much. All right. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking or baking question, give us a call anytime. Our number, once again, is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Katie. Katie, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Houston, Texas. How can we help you today? Well, I've never made gumbo. Well, it's my nephew's idea. He called me over to supervise. And we made our roux. I think our measurements were correct. We did equal parts vegetable oil and flour. We cooked it and cooked it and stirred it and stirred it. And it came out a really pretty chocolatey color, but I think it maybe was a little too silky. We read it should have been more like wet sand. So we add all the ingredients, cook the gumbo. About an hour and a half goes by, and I think it's done. There was a very heavy, thick layer. It looked like oil at the top. Mm. I don't know if the roux had separated or if it was maybe something from the okra that we put in. I doubt it was the okra. What were the protein items in the gumbo? We put in shrimp and smoked sausage. Okay. I didn't think they were too oily. Right. Okay. Well, here's the thing. When you did your roux, the flour and the oil, and it's equal parts, correct? Yes. But did you do it by volume or by weight? Oh, we did by volume. We did three quarters cup and three quarter cup. I think that's the problem right there. You needed more flour. Because by weight, it's not the same. Would have ended okay. up being more flour. And what happens when you cook flour very long like that and it gets darker and darker and darker? It loses its thickening capacity and its absorption. So that's why the oil separated out. Okay. It's also possible that the smoked sausage added some additional fat to the recipe. That might have also provided for the oil slick on top. Anyway, Chris, do you have any thoughts? I think you're right. If you think about weight versus volume, oil versus flour, a cup of flour versus a cup of oil, you know, is you're going to have to use like two cups of flour to a cup of oil or more for the equal weight. The binding power is lost. There's not enough flour, and the oil essentially separates and goes to the top. I don't think it was the shrimp or the uh, sausage. So just weigh your okay. ingredients next time and – you'll end up using twice as much flour. Oh, wow. Okay. That should solve the problem. You had mentioned that your roux was silky, not like wet sand. Mm Mm-hmm. That's because you didn't have enough flour. If you had a higher proportion of flour to oil, it would have been like wet sand. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. A scale is a good thing to get anyway, because particularly if you do any kind of baking, it's just so much Mm -hmm. more precise. No, I have one. I was at my sister-in-law's, so, well... You know, and it was his first time making gumbo. I guess mine too. Well, I hope you do it again and have yeah, better success. You. And it's great you tried to begin with. I think it's an easy fix. I think Sarah's right. Well, thank you all so much for taking my call. Thank you, Katie. Take care. Have a good one. This is Most Street Radio. It's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Annie from Medford, Massachusetts. I know Milk Street makes their scrambled eggs with olive oil, but I just love mine with sour cream. It makes them light, fluffy, and the right amount of creamy. Just scoop a tablespoon of sour cream in when you're almost ready to take your eggs off the heat. And enjoy. Thank you. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of the public radio show, Away With Words. Grant Martha, how are you guys doing? 
Fantastic. We're doing great. Today we've got uh, some tasty toponyms. These are words that come from place names. Huh. And Martha, I'm thinking about Spain. For example, uh, sherry, the drink sherry, comes from the city of Jerez, or if you're in Spain, I guess Jerez, which is in southern Spain. And that city's name was originally spelled X-E-R-E-S. And in the olden hmm. days, it had an S-H sound at the beginning of it. Hmm. And the name of this beverage was adapted into English as Sherris. And in fact, Shakespeare used it that way. In Henry IV, someone talks about uh, the second property of your excellent Sherris is the warming of the blood, uh, which I think we all would agree with. But it comes from the name of this city in southern Spain where it was produced. And the interesting thing is that uh, I mentioned Sherris, S-H-E-R-R-I-S, uh, being the original name in English. And it's like several other words in English that were mistaken as a plural because sheris mm. looks like it's plural in form. And so people eventually started calling it sherry, but that happened with other words as well. For example, the word pea, P-E-A. If you think back to that rhyme, peas, porridge, hot, right. um, it's the same idea. It comes from a word that originally looked like it was plural. And there are others as well, aren't there, Grant? Yeah, cherries came to us from the French cherries, which was singular, but the English looked oh, at that S huh. on the end and thought it must be plural and backformed the word cherry. And we did it again with the Greek for capers. Um, mm -hmm. Capers was a singular, and we decided that, well, there must be just one caper out there. Well, I think this only proves one thing, which is that English speakers are the least multilingual people in the world. <laughs> uh, we're just not very good with that, are we? Well, we'll borrow your words, and we'll borrow your food, <laughs> yeah. and we'll put our own stamp on them. We did that also with another alcoholic beverage that is named for a city, and this is port wine, which is named for the city of Porto, Portugal. And in fact, oh, yeah. Portugal itself, the country, is named for that same city. The Count of Porto conquered so much of the land there that... He gave uh, the name of a Porto to Portugal. Champagne is another one of those, right? The Champagne province. Right, the former province in northeastern France, um, which goes back etymologically to the word campus in uh, Latin. It, it goes back to uh, words that mean open country, and it's a relative hmm. of words like campus and campaign. This concept of a word which is singular in the original but sounds like a plural in English is this common outside of uh, culinary terms as well? Yeah, but funny enough, most of the ones I can think of are food. We borrowed broccoli as a singular, even though it's a plural. We borrowed mm -hmm. panini as a singular, even though it's a plural. Well, the only one that I can think of that is a non-food term is the term kudos. You know, we, we talk hmm. about congratulating people right. and giving them kudos. And I think so many of us think of that as a plural. But actually, the original Greek word for glory is kudos. So it has that S sound at the end of it. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I've certainly heard people say, I'm going to give you a kudo for that wonderful uh, dish that you whipped up. We often misborrow words, not just for the plurals. And I'm thinking about Tangier, Morocco. The tangerine is named after the city of Morocco because really? the fruit was originally imported from Asia into Europe through this city. Huh. Now, the full name was originally tangerine orange and shortened to tangerine by the mid-19th century. And that's interesting. But to me, the best fact about it is that people who live in Tangier are called tangerines. That's the name, what? the demonym, for people <laughs> no. who live in Tangier. Yeah, they're called tangerines. <laughs> <laughs> who says words aren't fun? Yeah, right? <laughs> So a little further east from, well, quite a bit further east from Tangier is Greece. And I'm thinking about a tiny little cooking staple, Martha. Yes. I was briefly in Corinth, Greece, and the port town of Corinth um, was for a very long time the place where you got currants, these little, little bitty huh. dried grapes from the Middle East. Who knew? Martha. Yeah, yeah, I knew. <laughs> Martha and, did. <laughs> and I did want to share that there's a word in German that comes from the name of that port and the name of that current. It's called Korintenkacher, which is a word that literally means raisin pooper. And that's something that you might uh, apply to somebody who's a nitpicker. 
Trendy word. Only the German. <laughs> That's lovely. Say it again, Martha. Korintinkocker. And there's a term in Greek that's similar, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a term uh, in Greek that's something like kuminopristis, which uh, means cumin splitter, which I also like. Hmm. I mean, we talk about hair splitting in English, but um, imagine splitting cumin. Because they're tiny little seeds, right? Mm. They're even smaller than, say, a poppy seed. Yeah, yeah. We've had people cumin splitting over how to pronounce cumin or cumin. (laughs) (laughs) Great, Martha, thank you. Uh, Next time someone refers to me as a korintinkocker... um... (laughs) I'm not going to feel quite so bad. Thanks. I can't imagine that they ever would. But <laughs> Thank you. It's always fun. Thanks Chris. for having us. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.